1: Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Show podcast. Today on the pod, in the midst of a housing crisis, why has Canada lost 45,000 construction jobs? Plus, parking lots. We look at the desperate need to widen Highway 1 in the Fraser Valley. And imagine a Vancouverite scoring a $2,000 ticket to the Taylor Swift concert in Los Angeles with nothing standing in the way of meeting fellow Swifties. Well, cue a Canadian airline to mess it all up. Plus, we'll tell you about a contest to find the driest brown lawn in the Lower Mainland. That's all next on the Jazz Joe Show podcast. Let's focus on two things that don't mix, Swifties and Canadian Airlines. Today, Air Passenger Rights and the Public Interest Advocacy Centre presented a report on how to strengthen the air passenger protection regulations. Now, the report is recommending Canada harmonize air passenger protection rules with the European Unions, which has a much stringent set of rules. You remember all those delays that we saw uh, around Christmas time last year. The recommendations, these present recommendations today, come just a few months after a parliamentary committee recommended sweeping changes to Canada's air passenger rights as well, stressing tougher enforcement and compensation for flight delays. Now in those recommendations, there are 21 in total. They included bigger monetary penalties, smoothing processes of compensation claims, and automatic payout offers following cancellation, significant delays, or denial of boarding. And now those recommendations further suggest putting the burden of proof on airlines to show why compensation should not be awarded and placing the cost of resolving claims with the regulator on the carrier's uh, shoulders. Now, those recommendations are exactly what people like Anise Lee want to see. She recently purchased tickets uh, with friends uh, to go watch Taylor Swift perform at Los Angeles SoFi Stadium. Ms. Swift has a 6 night she's performing uh, in that city. Now, the concert was last night. Her Flair Airlines flight was scheduled to depart early morning from YVR yesterday morning. Anise never got to see Taylor Swift, she joins us now. Anise, thank you for speaking to us today.
2: Thank you for having me.
1: So, quite the ordeal for you. Um, What's going through your mind today uh, after all that's transpired?
2: I mean, um, I'm definitely still processing what happened. And um, at the moment, obviously, my friends and I were still very upset, Um, but we are trying to reach out to Flair Airlines. Um, We're trying to see if we can get any sort of compensation, but so far uh, haven't gotten any responses back.
1: Uh, How did this trip start? I mean, was this sort of a last-minute purchase of Taylor Swift tickets uh, for Los Angeles?
2: Um, It kind of was, actually. Uh, Last week, my friends and I, like, we really wanted to see Taylor Swift, and we hadn't gotten lucky enough to, like, receive any codes to buy her tickets. So we got desperate and we just, uh, looked on some, uh, like third party ticket resellers and we bought our tickets for quite an expensive price. They were $2,000 each after, uh, the ticket fees and the conversion rates. But we accepted it because we, in the end, we just wanted to see her. So yeah, last week got the tickets and then immediately we booked our flights, um, with Flair Airlines. Uh, since they were, um, like, obviously the cheaper option compared to other uh, airlines. So, um, yeah, we were excited for the whole week. And then uh, yesterday we arrived at the airport and we got on our flight at 7 a.m. as uh, planned. Mm -hmm. And then uh, while we were up in the air uh, over an hour into our flight, um, the pilot suddenly announced overhead that they were going to reroute us back to Vancouver because of some mechanical issue with the toilets. Mm-hmm. And uh, everyone on the flight were very confused because we didn't understand why we, they couldn't just fly us, back, uh, fly us all the way to LA and then like, figure out how to fix it. But the pilot assured us, okay, this should take no longer than 15 to 20 minutes. We just wait in the plane while they fix it. Um, so, yeah, we got back to YVR at, I think, like around 10 a.m. And then we were left waiting in the plane for three hours, I think, like up between two to three hours while they came and tried to fix it. And um, eventually they finally realized it was going to take a while for them to fix it. The toilet or whatever they were trying to fix. So then the pilot told us, okay, we're going to deplane you guys and we're giving you a meal voucher um, at the terminal. So then we um, left the plane, waited at the gate. And then during this time, um, we got (laughs) pretty stressed (laughs) because um, we didn't know how long the plane was going to get delayed. Mm -hmm. Whenever we tried to talk to the flare agents at the counter, they kept saying, like, okay, we don't know what's happening, but we will tell you within the next half hour on any update. We're hopeful that they'll get us back out soon. And they basically kept saying this to us, like, every half hour when we did go and (laughs) try to go back Mm -hmm. and ask them about it. Um, So, yeah, eventually we realized, okay, this plane's never going to leave. So our next option was to kind of like look into uh, other flights that were flying out to LA um, and could get us there on time. What time was this roughly?
1: What time was that roughly when you started look for look for other flights?
2: Well, um, honestly, we were already looking at around like 12.
1: Okay. And what time was the but, concert? Um,
2: the concert was starting at 6.30. Okay. And the flight to LA was like two and a half, three hours.
1: Mm
2: -hmm. Um, So, yeah, we were getting pretty desperate. But unfortunately, like, all the other flights out to L.A. on that same day were all either full or, like, way too expensive or, like, it was just too late to get on them. Mm -hmm. Um, So then another option we were looking at was just to accept the fact that we weren't going to see her that night and try to resell our tickets. But um as you know, we bought them for quite a um huge price.
1: May I ask and, how much you paid?
2: Uh sorry, uh yeah, we paid $2000 each.
1: $2000 each for the tickets.
2: Yeah. Yeah, All it right. was a <laughs> Quite a big uh, purchase. Well, it's, it's
1: Taylor Swift, and no one should be surprised at the cost. That's for sure. Yeah, so, and
2: that's why we accepted it. <laughs> yeah.
1: So this is all a, a big dream, and so now, it, it, you know, you're, you're looking for flights. Uh, that isn't working. You may not get there in time. Uh, you're trying to sell the tickets, and you can't do that either, right?
2: No, it was too late for us to sell them, like on the same websites we bought them off of okay um and yeah we couldn't really get any refunds because like it wasn't the show that got canceled it was like our flight that was getting delayed and everything Mm -hmm. and yeah so in the end um i think it was like around like at 4 p.m is when they finally um stated that the flight was canceled um it was too late to do anything. We already knew we were gonna miss the concert and now our flight and now we like and at this point we just wanted to get like a refund somehow and and so I filed like a compensation request with Flair mm-hmm. but um basically what happened was like Flair cancelled the flight and they rebooked me for a flight going out this morning, which by the way, I received an update from them, they said that flight was also delayed. But because they, they rebooked my flight, um, they can't give me a refund or file or like process my compensation claim, because what they think is I'll still get to my destination on time. Um, Yeah, and I don't know what to say. Like, I I, I don't really know who to reach out to now.
1: So do you have any faith that you'll receive any compensation, A, for the flight, B, for the $2,000 you and your friend individually paid for Taylor Swift tickets right now?
2: Um, For the concert tickets, um, I don't really think I'll get anything back from them. Um, I'm hoping I can get like the flight refunded eventually,, mm-hmm. but even that's starting to look kind of slim. I think our next thing is just we're hoping to see her shows in Toronto because she did announce new tour dates for next year
1: uh I maybe you may want to drive, just
2: we might consider that at this point oh. we're definitely not gonna book with
1: flair anymore, yeah, I mean it's. It is kind of, I mean, it's, it's it's infuriating that this happened, number one, but number two, that, you know, you're out a lot of money, out of pocket, uh, and you've kind of just thrown up your hand and say, I'm going to have to eat the $2,000 loss. That isn't fair either.
2: Yeah, everything was just so unfortunate. Like, at, in the beginning, we were, like, still hopeful that, like, oh, maybe it's just a small issue, we can get there. And then, like, as the day went on, like, it, it like, our hopes just like dwindled, and and then we eventually had to accept that we were out of money. <laughs> yeah, we were never going to see Taylor Swift. <laughs> yeah,
1: Anise. Well, thank you so much for sharing your story. It it is a common one from so many Canadians who are fed up with this this type of um, behavior and, and um, ultimately uh, cost, poor customer service um, uh, that Canadians have to deal with from airlines. I do want to thank you for sharing your story today. And better luck, I fingers crossed, you do get those tickets in Toronto and, and you get there safely and you're able to see that concert.
2: Yeah, thank you so much for talking to me. I do hope this story gets up to a lot of people.
1: This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Window. Let's talk a little bit about foreign affairs just for a moment. The Globe and Mail uh, reports today that uh, conservative foreign affairs critic Michael uh, Chong was the target of a disinformation campaign uh, back in May uh, that was likely orchestrated uh, by China. The Globe and Mail goes on to say that uh, this is the second time uh, that Michael Chong has been on the radar of China because of his outspoken criticism of Beijing's authoritarian regime. Joining me now to talk a little bit about this second threat and, and of course, to talk about of an official public inquiry is Jeremy Nuttall, a Vancouver-based journalist for the Toronto Star. Jeremy, thank you for joining us. Always happy to be here. So let's talk first and foremost about Mr. Chong here. Does this surprise you that this, this was the second time um, that uh, according to the Department of Global Affairs the, the, the Chinese government uh, have Mr. Chong on their radar yeah it's uh,
0: you know it doesn't surprise me uh, I think that they were allowed to get away with it for so long that uh, it's going to take uh, quite some time before any uh, consistent measures or, or, or warnings or whatever to the uh, the Chinese embassy here in uh, Canada finally gets the message through if it ever does mm-hmm. um, you know I mean Chong uh Michael Chong told uh, us at the Star this morning that he was at least glad to to have actually gotten a, a phone call about this. Immediately, rather than two years after it happened, mm-hmm. uh, which was uh, what happened last time. So at least there's some movement on that
1: front. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that uh, that movement, uh, in regards to what you just said, uh, I think the Prime Minister Trudeau uh, in May did order Ceases to start briefing MPs about any intelligence uh, that uh, you know is leading to threats to them or their family. So that's a that's a good move. But as you say, it's taken a long time uh, to, to get here. Uh, have you heard anything new in regards to when we? can expect, you know, more sort of firm information on when we can see a public inquiry? Um,
0: not, no, there's really not much going on now. It's, it seems to have really died down with the, uh, the summer break. Um, but I think that this is only going to add more fuel to the fire and we'll probably uh, start getting those demands yet again. Um, so I would imagine that you're going to see something in the next uh, few weeks. It's probably going to ramp up again, especially you know, as the session prepares to go back in in late September.
1: Mm-hmm. And there's been talk uh, by some saying, hey, wait a minute here. China obviously is a clear and present uh, challenge before us. But why stop there? If we're, do, uh, if we're going to hold an inquiry into foreign interference, let's include Russia, let's include Iran, let's include India. Uh, do you think we'll get to that point or do you think this is going to be specific to China?
0: Um, I think this one has to be specific to China, just because of the size of the the foreign influence operations that China is actually running, and not just the size, but also the effectiveness. Mm-hmm. And I know that, particularly in government, they'd like to expand it um, so that it doesn't look like they're, they are, you know, so that they are pointing out one country uh, which could potentially hurt uh, international relations. But I just think that you know the, the size of China's operations and the effectiveness of them are just—they're too big to be to be lumped in with other with other countries, especially uh, you know Russia, for instance. I mean, certainly they do they do try, uh, but uh, you know I wouldn't say they've really had you know effects on elections like mm-hmm. the Chinese efforts have
1: been accused of. So uh, inviting these other countries, Russia, India, or you know, at least looking into what they're doing, and and, and Iran, uh, would just elude it in your mind.
0: Uh, I don't think deluded. I just think that oh sorry, part, pardon me, sorry, I misunderstood you. Yeah, I think it would. I think it would. I, I I think that China has to be its own specific focus. Um and I also think uh, you know, when you're talking about other countries that we need to, to, to also do this with, I think Iran was probably probably a good one to also have an independent inquiry on. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's so, yeah, I, I just feel like, yeah, if it's diluted or if, or if you're looking right across the board, you're not going to be able to spend as much time on, on the really important and most potent aspects of this.
1: You raise a very good point because, uh, you know, the the Chinese diaspora, first of all, is so large uh, in our country, has an extensive history over many, many uh, decades. And the sophistication in regards to China's uh, influence campaign uh, is is uh, as you say is is effective, and you, we have to keep an eye on it. That's for sure. Do you think China has now and beyond this, uh, uh, you know, uh, second attempt in regards to influ- influencing or at the very least trying to target Mr. Chong and his family? Beyond that, uh, do you think China will start pulling back a little bit just based on the the publicity on this issue the last year or so, uh, and the collective pushback? And once again, also when it comes to polling. The public also remain incredibly skeptical of China and 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 their motives.
0: I think if they I think if they keep on getting caught and getting embarrassed by being caught, um, they'll they'll start to pull back a little bit because it just doesn't you know I mean just it just if you keep on getting busted, you start looking like clowns and. China does not like to look like clowns, so I think that if they do keep on getting caught, they will probably pull back. But they'll still be always looking for for some kind of an in. I think that maybe it just won't be as uh, it won't be as brazen.
1: Mm-hmm. What do you think the Americans think about all this in regards to us haggling and over uh, an inquiry and whether it's go what the re- points of reference should be, all of those types of things? What do you think the Americans think of us? Because there is such a, a pushback on China in the U.S., there is a you know loud and vocal reshoring campaign and bringing back some of the manufacturing uh sector back to to you to, to the united states how do you think they view us in regards to what we're trying to do up here
0: i i think that we're we're seen uh by not just the united states but also by the rest of uh, our our allies in the five eyes as uh uh less um sturdy partner as in years past um you know you, you, when when you have other countries that have have already made uh strides to combat this, like Australia, like the U.S., like the U.K., mm-hmm. and Canada is still dithering on, on having a proper uh, open inquiry, I, I think it just it, it makes our allies second-guess us. Um, and we are, we've already seen concerns about that raised by uh, congressmen uh, or in, in the United States as well as uh, people in, in Australia uh, when it comes to information sharing.
3: hmm mm-hmm. mm-hmm.
0: So, You know, it's 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 we're 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 really ruining our our credibility on this the longer that we, we avoid it. Yeah.
1: Jeremy, thank you for your time today. I really appreciate it. Always always a pleasure, Jess. the Chambers of Commerce uh, in the Fraser Valley are uniting together to push the provincial government to speed up plans to widen Highway 1 and not just widen it out to to Abbotsford, but all the way to Chilliwack. Uh, Their comments come after the provincial government recently uh, wanted to hear comments from folks in that region uh, in regards to Highway 1 expansion. Uh, Now, these communities say, look, uh, time for talk is over. They want shovels in the ground because of the incredible growth of the region and the fact that anybody, uh, you know, whether it's on a weekday morning or evening or, in fact, on a Sunday afternoon, uh, can see traffic uh, just lined up for many, many kilometres. Now, add to that, of course, the population of the region exploding. Uh, Fraser Valley is forecast to increase by, the population of Fraser Valley is expected to increase by 47%. By 2050. And Chilliwack uh, in the last federal census uh, was uh, cited as the second fastest growing city in British Columbia. Ken Popov is the mayor of Chilliwack and he joins us now. Ken, thank you for speaking to us. My pleasure, Jez. So, uh, you know, for our listeners, uh, walk me through what Highway One uh, for your community and many uh, communities in the Fraser Valley is like most days.
4: Well, if there's no accidents, it's it's you know it's pretty much bumper to bumper. But uh, um, you know things do kind of pop up from time to time, and and then on on comes the backup. Uh, uh, it's an old, adequated actual highway that's 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 going through the Fraser Valley. You know, if folks have driven through the valley, you'll understand what I'm talking about. It's it's uh, it's in it's in dire need of an update. There's no doubt.
1: Uh, this uh, conversation about an expansion now, it it almost you almost wish it was ten years ago, don't you?
4: Well absolutely. Absolutely. But uh um you know like I'm glad they're talking about it now. Uh uh I see the fourth stage, which is us from uh um just outside of Abbotsford into into Yale Road, that's across the vetter Bridge, is at least being looked at. Um there's a lot of challenges in that chunk of highway. Um, I had a sit down with uh, Minister Fleming about a month ago in the cabinet. I was in Chilliwack, and and after our, our um, floods happened there in 2021, uh, the the structure of that that piece that was flooded over by the Sumas River is is definitely in question. So there's a lot of moving pieces to to put this fourth stage in place. Um, they need to make it more more resilient, maybe add to the pump station that does pump out the uh, um, you know, like the actual water out of the river. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot, like I said, there's a lot of moving pieces to to the rebuild of that section. But it is surely needed, and I'm sure that that it's under study. And then they'll put a budget to it, and and hopefully in my lifetime, we will see it work done.
1: What's a chance? Uh, and maybe I'm thinking way off into the future, but I mean it, it, widening the the highways is needed it's it's a clear and present issue I don't think anybody would disagree with that what's the chance of improved transit out in your region as well? and what I mean by that you know one day having a train coming out that way, a sky train potentially um, do you hold any hope for rapid transit for your region
4: well you know it's funny there's a lot of folks here in here in Sherlock. why don't they do that well, I don't think we have the population base to do that but Certainly it's a you know, it's a uh uh you know, it's a perfect choice right down the middle of the highway because there is there is room to do that. But to be honest with you, yeah, I don't think it's gonna happen in in our lifetime.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, why not? Because you're, th- that's where the growth is. I mean, if you look at it, um, we just had somebody on the program uh, talking about um, the uh, you know reviving the old interurban from Chilliwack all the way to the Scott Road SkyTrain station in and around that area would be a lot cheaper. Um, but don't you think that's part of the conversation? I mean, I know the Highway One expansion is the priority, and I totally understand why. I've been stuck in that on that highway many a time. Um, but should there not be a broader sort of conversation your community on its own may not but the Fraser Valley collectively I mean part of the frustration one could argue is that look, look how long did it take Surrey to get an expanded SkyTrain literally three decades yeah. after that Expo yeah. line was in for a few few stops uh, do you think the region needs to work closely like the Fraser Valley collectively to drive home the point with the provincial government the senior levels of government going, this is where the growth is for God's sakes start spending more money out here.
4: Uh, I, I, I totally agree You know, Chilliwack being one of the fastest growing, growing communities in Western Canada. Um, our growth is exponential. It's, uh, um, we've never seen this happen before. Um, I know the premier has, you know, spent an inordinate amount of time out here just because of that to reach out to the uh, folks in Chilliwack and, and listen to their wants and needs and, and, and that transportation corridor is, is, is dearly needed to be worked on he's aware of that his his team is aware of that um conversations are in the works but um you know as far as the speed of it actually getting done that's in question now like I, you know i explained to you earlier about the studies that they have to do about being more uh, resilient to what we experienced a couple of years ago it's going to take time it's going to take money um is there a need absolutely there's a need there's no doubt about that they they put those uh, um, uh, you know speed um, signs up to the tune of around 30 million dollars to me um, i think that money could have been used in a better fashion uh, the blockages uh, seem to be on the on ramp, so maybe they should have put the money into extending the on-ramps you know those little things will certainly help now, until it comes time for you know our true expansion of that system
1: mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> do you think this delay, because you're right, it is even when there's not an accident, it's, it's very busy. Um, do you think it's costing your community business and attracting business?
4: Well, as far as the you know like moving of goods, you, you, you talked about transportation now that the bike bike strike the bus strike is now over. Uh, um, but if you've got a clogged actual highway system, your 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 transportation network is not going to be efficient mm-hmm. because it's not going to you know stay on time because of the volume of traffic. A, B, and if there is an incident on the highway, well, the bus is backed up like everybody else's. So it uh, there there is definitely uh, room for improvement. And, and like I said before, I'm glad they're they're researching into into ways of of you know solving that 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 quagmire of, of traffic issues that we have. Uh, it's funny when the minister came out here. I he came out on a you know on a Saturday morning. Well, I wish he would have come out here on a Friday afternoon because he would experience what <laughs> you know, like a lot of commuters experience is is a you know as a backed up system. So mm-hmm. it uh, yeah.
1: Well, it's he a or a Sunday or Monday afternoon during a long weekend as well. It's, it's, uh, yeah. it's not a, it's not a great place to be. That's for sure.
4: And, and, and you know, truly I do, uh, uh, you know, give him kudos for coming out here and, and, uh, you know, he walked around our downtown and, you know, spent some money in some of the local stores and just got to know people, but just, you know, he's a regular guy. Yeah. But I wish it would have come out on a Friday and really experienced <laughs> what a lot of people experienced. But, yeah, we joked about that. But uh, I think that went in one year and out the other. But whatever.
1: <laughs> no. oh, fingers crossed. It has to be done, that's for sure. Now, before you go, uh, I do want to ask you yep. another one final question on a different subject. With water conservation going on, it looks like your community uh, is being quite proactive. Um, they've launched a Chilliwack Ugliest Lawn Contest. Uh, and that means, okay. uh, in light of water conservation, there's a lot of probably you know uh, uh very dry lawns out there, ugly lawns um, absolutely it it, it it must be did you guys think of this just over the last couple of weeks or week or so? I mean it sounds like a fabulous well, idea.
4: You no, know, we came out of the gate a while ago. it's probably been um, six weeks or a couple of months ago uh, hmm. our 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 communication staff they seen this some community somewhere and they said well let's do that here and and you know, like, like we all know that that irrigating your 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 lawns is, is like 30 percent of of all the consumption of water, mm-hmm. and that's just not a good use of the water. So we decided to put a you know, like a contest together with a little prize at the end too. I'm not sure how that's all going to play out as far as uh, you know, like judging goes. I hope I don't have to do it because uh, uh, um, there are a lot of ugly lawns to look at right now. There's no doubt, but have to put a little bit of humor into it and, and a, like a different twist on bringing that to you know the forefront of our our you know, citizens of Chilliwack just you know you don't need to cut your lawn you don't need to water your lawn right now just let her go and we'll maybe get a get prize at the end so no big thanks to my communication staff for putting that together I think it's it's a lot of fun
1: Ken thanks for your time today
4: my pleasure jazz enjoy your day and stay safe
1: Well, the Canadian construction industry shed, get this, 45,000 jobs in July, according to Stats Canada's latest labour force survey. That's 45,000 people, sorry, or jobs in July, 45,000. Now, the government agency notes that the the jobs were shed uh, in British Columbia, Quebec and Ontario. That's where they're mostly concentrated. In BC alone, 21,000 jobs were were lost Uh, zooming out on a national level It's worth noting that Canada's construction sector lost more jobs than any other industry uh, included in Stats Canada's uh, survey. So what's causing this? I mean, we're in the midst of a housing crisis. And when you hear that the the construction sector has lost 45,000 jobs in July and 21,000 of those jobs are right here in British Columbia. What joining me now to talk a little bit about these jobs uh, um, going away is Chris Gardner, president of the Independent Conduct. Contractors and Businesses Association, Chris. Thank you for joining us today.
3: Uh, it's great to be on the show, Jess. Thank you. Uh,
1: what am I missing here? We need to build more housing, and yet this says this new report says that we've lost forty five thousand construction positions in July. Uh, what's happening here? Well, that's um,
3: uh, one. That's not that's a national number, so it's important to put that in context. Mm-hmm. But the general trends are this. Um, 20% of the construction workforce uh, across Canada and in British Columbia um, are 55 years or older. And the average age of retirement in construction is lower than, than other sectors of the economy, it's 60 years old. So what we're facing here is uh, a workforce that's aging and people are going to be retiring. Um, so that that's a big challenge for us. And in British Columbia, there's about 250,000 men and women who work in construction, accounting for about 10% of our economy. Um, so people aging out is, uh, is is a challenge. And so there's going to be a few ways that, uh, a few things we can do to um, uh, deal with that problem. One of them is, uh, a very important one, is telling young people about the exciting career opportunities that um, a career uh, in the trades and in construction offers and we don't tell that story um, in in the way we should in high schools mm-hmm. um, you know if, if a young person goes to a counselor and says hey, I am interested in being a business person uh, you know nine times out of ten that counselor going to say you got to go to university and study accounting or business the counselor won't say uh, hey why don't you consider going uh, to a technical school or college learn a trade get some experience and start a business. Every single contracting company from the very largest in this country uh, to, the, to the smallest are all entrepreneurs. They're all started by people, by families who, who got experience, um, gained skills and took a risk. And uh, it's an extremely rewarding career. And the other side of construction that we don't talk about enough is the technology. Construction is a technology story. There's more technology now being applied in the construction sector in terms of how we design and build buildings than ever before. About $5 billion a year is being invested in technology applications for the construction industry. So if you're interested in technology, there's great opportunities in construction. So we need to tell the story more because we are facing a challenge across our economy in terms of the shortage of people in the workforce and in construction specifically, because of the lower ages at which construction workers tend to retire. Um, and the fact that 20% of the workforce is 55 years or older, uh, there are some significant labor force challenges uh, uh, that construction is facing.
1: Uh, we have a significant increase in the amount of immigrants that are coming to this country, 500,000 expected uh, by 2025 uh, at permanent residents um, and students. Uh, you know, we hit a million uh, and are expecting a million again for 2023. Uh, it, what you're saying to me is that even in the pipeline, we don't have enough people uh, uh, educating themselves on construction trades, the, that we're not, we're not hitting the mark even when it comes to the pipeline right now in regards to future uh, construction workers?
3: Yeah, so a couple of things. The, the, the federal government set out a target of about 500,000 people per year in terms of new immigrants. Mm-hmm. Only 2% of those people are, are going to go into a construction um, trade. Uh, or occupation, and that's a very, very low number. So across the country we need about eighty thousand there's about eighty thousand job vacancies in construction and so two percent of five hundred thousand um, is uh, is well short of that goal about, you know so that that's 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 not we've got to do we've got to do things differently when we approach immigration and uh, so governments are starting to look at um, priority, Uh, immigration for people with a background in construction trades, uh, accelerating that process. Uh, But it's going to take a while. And there is, I would say, one of the big problems when we look at immigration. And to your point, Canada's population expanded by 1.2 million people last year. Um, and that is a that is a, that is a historic high, and that number is made up of not only new immigrants, but it's made up of refugees, it's made up of temporary farm workers, and then international students, and all those people have to live somewhere. Either going to buy homes or rent homes, and so the challenge is that's putting an enormous amount of pressure on whether it's everything from schools. Um, training spaces, our healthcare system, our roads, our infrastructure, um, and housing. And it's, you know, that, that is, that is a a very, very significant challenge that we're facing. Mm -hmm. And so the way through this is that all three levels of government have to work more closely together and they're not, they're not playing the, they're, they're not doing that. There's more finger pointing as the province, the feds and local governments, um, are, are overwhelmed and then blaming each other for the challenges that we're facing. And that's not helping any of us. Um, so we've got to find the right balance, the right numbers, uh, and we've got to be more effective at how we build the infrastructure, the social supports, the physical infrastructure, uh, the housing. Um, and because uh, if we don't do that, uh, Uh, we're never going to be able to tackle uh, the challenges around affordability and the pressures in the healthcare system.
1: Yeah, I mean, I look at the housing conversation here. Locally, we talk about, you know, potentially building six units uh, on a single family lot uh, here in Vancouver. Um, We talk about a housing crisis, that we need to build more homes. Uh, I had somebody from the Business Council of BC here, the chief economist uh, last week, and in the last four quarters, we've had 100, I believe, eighty thousand people move to British Columbia. 180 thousand. Yet we, in that time, only built 43 thousand homes. Um, and what you're telling me, in the challenges before you, is that even if we have the will to do all of this in regards to build these homes, there's just not enough people right now available to actually build them.
3: Yeah, so there's there's I th- there's a two part answer to that to, to what you just set out, and and it's it's a very good point. Uh, in 1972, uh, we built 230,000 new homes in Canada. 50 years later, in 2022, last year, uh, we built fewer homes. We built 220,000 homes. So if you think of the people that are now moving to Canada and to British Columbia, um, RBC and the Canadian Mortgage and Housing Corporation came out with numbers earlier this year and said, we have to build for the next, over the next decade, uh, just over 800,000 new homes a year for the next 10 years. Well, we've only been able to put on the market each year roughly for the last 50 years, about 220, 30, 40,000 new homes, depending on the year. So we've now got to move that up to nearly four times the number. Um, That's not going to happen uh, with, when you consider the length of time it takes city halls to approve projects and the complicated uh, 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 permitting processes and the costs and fees that they uh, layer on to housing. Uh, And it's not going to happen given the challenges we're facing with uh, workers in the workforce. So lots of opportunity, uh, but we need governments to work together more closely and recognize the pressures on the system um, that are being created and are resulting from a shortage of workers, uh, but at the same time. Um, you can't bring in. There's no point in going out there and, and recruiting doctors and nurses and have them land in Canada and they sit and they sit on their hands for three or four years because we won't recognize their credentials. Mm-hmm,
1: mm-hmm. Well, it's a complicated issue, but look at the end of the day. Uh, if we say we need more housing, we need people to build this stuff, and it's quite con- concerning when, when when we have these challenges before us and you see numbers like forty-five thousand, uh, you know, forty-five thousand positions gone in July alone. Um, it, it's a huge challenge, a generational one, uh, that's for sure. Chris, thank you so much for your time They really appreciate it. Great. Thank you, Chaz.
2: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash specialoffer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash specialoffer.
4: Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive help supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious lolly Focus Pops or lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease.
2: Hey Bart, summer's almost here. Which kind of sprinkler do you like? The one that goes like this? Or the one that goes like this? Oh, and there's this one! (laughs) The last day of school, Millhouse. Try to show some dignity.
1: (laughs) That's right. There's no sprinklers, Millhouse, because stage two water restrictions came into effect uh, on Friday placing a complete prohibition on spraying or sprinkling the grass for the first time in the region since 2015. Well, uh, you know, that can be a discouraging thing for some, but in Port Coquitlam, they've launched a Golden Streets and Lawns Contest uh, encouraging residents to submit photos of their homes uh, or their blocks in order to encourage and incentivize compliance with the restrictions. Joining me now to talk a little bit about the Golden Lawn Contest and, of course, uh, water restrictions is Brad West, the Mayor of Port quitlam Brad, welcome. Thank you very much for having me, Jazz. So was this your idea or did you just have to sit down with your communications department uh, there to come up with this? How did this come about?
5: Uh, full credit to this one goes to our city staff. Uh, you know, we're always looking at ways in Port Coquitlam to uh, use carrots rather than sticks. Sometimes you need to use sticks, and obviously those are available through fines. But I think a lot of people, you know, they get it. They understand uh, the issue at hand and they want to do the right thing. And the vast majority of us are doing the right thing. And so we wanted to find a way to recognize those folks. And our staff came up with this idea of having a uh, uh, golden lawn or golden neighborhood contest. And, uh, you know, we were able to put together some pretty good prizes. We got a free block party where. The city will uh, offer up $150 worth of uh, block party supplies. Maybe you'll even get a visit from the fire department or the mayor. Uh, We've got three $100 gift cards and, of course, bragging rights for the the best golden lawn or best golden neighborhood in Port Coquitlam. So I think, again, it's just a great idea to recognize those folks who are doing the right thing
1: mm-hmm. now uh the the ban of course as you know is region-wide but uh, penalties can vary i think in vancouver the penalty is 500 dollars uh, for not following stage two water restrictions uh in burnaby it's 250 and surrey to my understanding it's about 300 have you do you know at this point whether or not you've had to hand out a lot of uh, tickets yet
5: uh
1: my understanding is so
5: far we haven't had to ticket uh we have had a couple of warnings and uh you know, most folks, when they get that warning, uh, they uh, comply with that. They A lot of it is a, an education thing. Not everyone it maybe follows the news quite as closely as the rest of us do. Um, so we've had a couple of warnings, but uh, for the most part, folks are compliant, which is a great thing to see.
1: Mm-hmm. Um- Talk to me a little bit about just, um, you know, we always talk about we live in a rainforest here uh, in the lower mainland. Why should we have to deal with water restrictions? Uh, Is this going to take a while in your mind only because sometimes as I don't want to use the word entitled, but we're used to having access to water. It's not an issue here. This is not, you know, um, many other countries that struggle with the issue of water. We have plenty of water here, but not in the summer. Do you think this is going to take a while for this to sort of sink in for people or do you think we're, we're getting there pretty quickly?
5: I mean, I think folks are getting it, but it, it's an area where education could go a long way. And, you know, certainly even myself, I'm constantly learning about uh, the water situation in Metro Vancouver. And so, you know, while it's true that we're, we're blessed with uh, water much of the year, uh, you know, we do have to take these efforts to preserve our, our water reservoir levels. Um, you know, we're so fortunate in our region that we have you know, the best drinking water probably anywhere in the world. Uh, and you know, we're very used to turning on the tap and out comes water. And uh, again, it's the safest, cleanest water you can find uh, anywhere on this planet. Uh, We want to make sure that that continues to be there for people. Uh, And so that means when conditions get like they are and we're experiencing drought-like conditions, uh, you know, we need to take a few extra steps to make sure that our water levels are protected. And, you know, in the grand scheme of things, I don't think that's asking too much of people.
1: Mm -hmm. Uh, My final question to you, we had uh, Malcolm Brody on here uh, from uh, the City of Richmond. He's also on the Metro Um, water board. Um, We are going to have to, to a certain degree, get get ready for a major infrastructure um, spend in regards to water here, whether it's spanning the present reservoir or perhaps building other reservoirs. There is going to be a big infrastructure spend in the billions of dollars, is there not in the next few years?
5: Uh, Absolutely. The can has been kicked down the road for decades in terms of operating some pretty critical infrastructure in our region to support not only the significant growth that we expect over the next uh, several decades, but also to even support the current population that we have. And so you can only kick that can down the road for so long. And so, yes, there is going to be a very significant capital spend in Metro Vancouver to upgrade our wastewater treatment plants, to upgrade our uh, water facilities, our sewers, our utilities. Uh, And so certainly the region is looking for support from senior levels of government uh, because our region uh, very much is an economic driver for the province for the country uh, a lot of the requirements for upgrade come from uh, new requirements from the provincial and federal government they want you to meet a higher standard mm-hmm. uh, that's a great thing in many respects uh, but it's a more expensive thing and so uh, we're certainly looking to get our fair share of Metro Vancouver dollars back into our region from the federal and provincial government to support those projects.
1: Brad, I know you're spending some time with your family today. I appreciate you making a few moments for our audience to chat about chat on this issue. really appreciate it. Thank you so much.
5: Thanks for having me and hope everyone's having a great summer and you too, Chad. <laughs>